0: The economic prescription that doesn't kill the patient and this is how wars are started. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizen's Report for the 2nd of September 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens' Party Research Director, Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the austerity policy being dictated by central bankers and the alternatives that will actually fix the problem. Uh, And then we'll talk about an example of a very egregious, flat-out lie that came through the Australian media recently Uh, which is exactly the nature of how wars are started. Now, don't forget, if you like the show, hit Mm -hmm. the like button, subscribe and ring the notification bell so that you're alerted of new shows uh, and other extras that we put up. And share this as widely as you can. Comment below. Uh, All of those things help get this a wider circulation. Now, Uh, before we start...
1: Yes, I just wanted to... I've announced this on the show before, but... uh... It's D-Day next week, so remind the viewers, on Wednesday, the 7th of September, which is next Wednesday, today's Friday morning, uh, the, there will be a public post office bank forum at Parliament House. And it goes from midday, 12pm to 1pm, so just for one hour. It, it's hosted by the Licensed Post Office Group, and it'll be uh, the host there will be Angela Cramp, who's the Executive Director, and there'll be representatives of the Licensed Post Office Group there. Uh, The featured speaker is Matt Robson, the former Cabinet Minister of New Zealand, who I've interviewed on our Citizens Insight program on New Zealand's Postal Bank, which is Kiwi Bank. Um, So we've brought Matt Robson over to address this forum and hold meetings with members of Parliament. And it will be addressed by other members of Parliament who support the proposal, including Bob Cadder, who will introduce the bill. And we're hoping to have actually quite a few members of parliament, broadly representative of cross-section of the, of the parliament. So this is seen to be bipartisan, which it, which it actually is. Um, the difference is, Alisa, while there's while there's bipartisan support, they're not leading on it. The, leadi- the, the leaders on this campaign have to be the people of Australia to demand that they act on it, and then politicians will respond. So what we need the viewer to do is in the next week... Contact your member of parliament, and that we'll have the link to our press release with instructions on our website on this. Contact your member of parliament. Also, please look up the senators in your state and give them, send them an email and give them a call as well, and tell them you support the Postal Bank and they should send someone along to this forum, either the member of parliament themselves or a staff member, a representative of their staff, um, so that they get this briefing firsthand on how this proposal will work. Mm. Right. It's, this is the education part of the campaign. Everything we do, the success we have in our campaigns starts with um, supporters making those calls, sending those emails, motivating their members of parliament. Mm. Right? This is really, really crucial. Yeah. So, and just one last thing is the the the, the venue will be the Senate Committee Room 2s Three. Mm. All right. So that's that's on the um that'll be on the press release when you click on it, and make sure you get that information to them as well. But really. Please make those
0: calls. Yes, Uh, now on to our first topic, the economic prescription that doesn't kill the patient. Um, So we've seen this before in history where um, in a financial crisis you hit the phenomenon sometimes of inflation and central banks, bankers usually are the ones that tell governments, "Okay." In order to get this under control so we can keep the stability of the financial, the all-important financial system priority, number one, is maintain our financial order, uh, you're going to have to cut or crush economic growth because we need to rein in um, those that inflation and achieve price stability. Um, now, we're seeing it again today, uh, and we've just had over the 25th to the 27th of August, the annual gathering of various central bankers from the world's most prominent central banks, IMF and other major financial institutions held in Wyoming, Jackson Hole. And at that event, uh, the head of the uh, Fed, the US Federal Reserve, um, uh, Jerome Powell, has stated that He's going to continue to raise interest rates, including with another 0.75% rise in September and continuing as long as is necessary to achieve that price stability, even though, as he admitted, it will bring some pain to households and businesses. And the uh, Fed President of the Richmond Federal Reserve, Thomas Barkin, added to that assessment that the Fed must curb inflation even if it causes a recession. Uh, and Vol- um, I should say, uh, Jerome Powell invoked the first, or the Fed chairman who was the first Fed chairman at the time when this Jackson Hole summit started to become a regular thing, Paul Volcker, who faced a uh, similar you know, massive upsurge of inflation through the 1970s. And of course, he raised interest rates to 21.5%. Uh, He told a congressional committee in October 1979, he said, the standard of living of the average American has to decline. I don't think you can escape that. And then after that came to pass, and you had a collapse of small businesses, manufacturing, construction, everything being smashed. He told the Wall Street Journal, I'm not sorry about it. I don't know any other course of action that would have been politically feasible or economically feasible. And that is the point we really want to make. There is an alternative to this monetary nonsense. Um, Now, Jackson Hole, um, at at the point when Volcker was making those kind of interventions, Mm. became at that point, because this was on the um, tail of the destruction of the Bretton Woods financial arrangements, which was a, an agreement set up at the end of World War Two, that nations, in order to facilitate uh, trade, you know, to, to get countries rebuilt after the war and so forth, would agree to a certain set of arrangements um, that were standardised across the board, integrated sort of framework that would um, facilitate trade and put speculation on the back burner. Now, when that was dismantled, starting in 1971 when the US President announced they would be taking the link between gold and the US dollar away, getting rid of that, a a new era of mammoth speculation began Uh, and a whole series of phase changes ensued from that point, which included the destruction of Glass-Steagall by 1999, which meant that banks that were protected by deposit insurance government deposit insurance could gamble with people's deposits and people's money and get bailed out for it Um, but fast forwarding through until more currently Jackson Hole has been the scene of many a crime and a major conduit for major financial phase changes such as most prominently as we've reported in our Australian Alert Service weekly newsletter. Um, The financial regime change that was discussed in 2019 whereby central banks would be given even greater reins to control not only monetary policies we're talking about with interest rates but to control fiscal policy which means the decisions on where governments direct their spending. Um, A global digital currency which was proposed by Mark Carney the head of the Bank of England in 2019 at Jackson Hole. Um, A new green speculative bubble which would include new financial instruments, new forms of speculation, new regulations and taxes, which would again constrain the real economy. Uh, And of course, later that year, uh, when the so-called repo crisis, which was the um, seizing up of short-term money markets, occurred, this led to some of those things that were discussed at Jackson Hole coming to pass, including entirely new bailout mechanisms. And there's an article I urge people to read about this, about how the Fed was given powers to even override the Congress and make laws regarding these new kind of bailouts, which was published by Wall Street on Parade and we ran it in our newsletter recently. Um, but, the, yeah, the point here being that this is being presented as a fait plea. The financial system comes first. In order to protect it, we're going to have to crush the economy, you know, temporarily suppress I growth, etc. No, that's not the only I way. Think,
1: I think what I think what you're saying, um, Elisa, in, in that historical description, is the economy has been disappearing down the Jackson Hole, <laughs> and um, I want to I, th- let me. Let me uh, also cover the same period of history because it does go back to Bretton Woods. Because what Bretton Woods was 44 to 71, it was an agreement and the, the, the connection between the US dollar and gold was important. That peg was important because every other currency was pegged to the US dollar. And um, the purpose of that was so that there was stability. People could see the value. You could recognize what, where value was in, the finan- in the, everyone's economy, mm. right? Now, um, you know, when it it was flexible, if a country fell into short-term problems, say like a famine in an African country, right, which would, you know, a famine in an African country would really devastate that country's economy, the purpose of the IMF was to give them a loan, to tide them over, to support their currency, to keep their currency at this even um, peg to Mm -hmm. the dollar, right, so that they didn't have, um, you know, inflationary problems and and those sort of things. if, if the pressures got too bad, there was an ability for countries to revalue their currency and, and you could reset what the currency would be and every, the whole world knew that. And so there was a transparency and that's what, that's what allowed the system to take place. But think about what inflation is. Inflation is um, uh, when money, which is a claim on goods and services, uh, increases, but goods and services don't increase, right? And there's, and, and there's more money chasing fewer goods and services. There's two reasons for inflation. One is an increase in more money, two is a breakdown in the production of goods and services. And the way the parameters of of Bretton Woods worked is it, it provided an incentive for government policymakers in each country to, because they they wanted to, you know, it was it was good to maintain the stability of the system, for government policymakers in each country to make sure that they were investing in the things that kept them productive Mm. right and guess what the two and a half decades after world war ii was the period of greatest productivity growth in the history of the world because of those parameters Mm. but why was it why did it collapse because the brits actually in the city of london who was the only country there were 44 countries to vote for on, on the Bretton woods agreement the final vote was 43 to 1 the one no vote was Great Britain, led by John Maynard Keynes. What did the Brits do in the sixties? They started to allow gold speculation, which had, which was essentially illegal. They started to allow gold speculation in London, and that ended up weakening the system. Now think about this: the, the Bretton Woods ended in seventy-one, right? Volcker is seventy-nine. That's only eight years. Mm. If if we were talking to our ten-year-old son, um, eight years is a long time. Mm. To me, the global financial crisis was yesterday, mm. right? That's what 14 years ago now. Mm. That was a very short period of time, and the reason Volcker had this inflation problem was because of the collapse of Bretton Woods. That's actually that was the reason, right? But what, but instead of recognising that that hang on, we lost our way badly. We need to go back to a Bretton Woods system so that we get production in the economy again. They took this approach where the premise is the whole free market. Um, Idea, or the or the market itself. Idea that the market only the market makes wise financial decisions. Mm-hmm. Not governments. Not people who make investment. Not who decide. You know, national investment strategies. Just the market, and so um, it's the it's the buying power of the public just doing what they want to do that directs where an economy goes. So, oh, there's too much buying power. We have to crush that. Knowing in their own quotes, knowing they're talking about crushing people's living standards, yeah. right? because they didn't want to go back to something where governments had more say because they had agreed to a set of rules like Bretton Woods. That worked! The greatest productivity growth in the history of the world. Guess what's happened ever since Bretton Woods went down? We have had four or five decades of economists saying, oh, why can't we get productivity up? Why can't we get productivity up? I mean, Mm. China's got it up, but, oh, you know, we try and try and try. We can't get productivity up. Mm. Yeah, because you're not investing.
0: And look at the rate. of banking collapses, yes, having increased, um, you know, with the Glass-Steagall system, which prevented speculation, you had virtually none, and then after that, you know, a massive. Um, it's the financial decline.
1: sector that has essentially benefited from this insane proposal. But you've got to think of the financial sector as like a mafia, and who does the mafia kill the most? not their customers, no. they kill each
2: other,
1: right? <laughs> they, they don't mind knocking each other off. But the, but the mafia stays in power, right? That's, that's, that's the main thing. And the bottom line is what they don't want is law enforcement, i.e. government, to come in and make sure the, the right outside. things are done for mm. the people. Yeah. So we have to have a system, which leads us into what we're about to talk yes, about, we're bringing, to get investment we're into the economy. Bringing That's the, the s- law
0: Bringing the law enforcement to town. Yeah. <laughs> Through a postal bank. Yeah, it's it going to be sheriff. everywhere. The, the, wherever there's a post office, is going to be the law enforcement the, the, because... The,
1: the, the sheriff is coming, or, or the marshal, as um uh, in the movie Tombstone, Wyatt Earp said, you tell them I'm coming and I'm bringing hell with me. <laughs>
0: So the local post office manager, get ready for that role. Yeah, no, yeah. It won't be that hard. But um, but speaking of um, you know every town, you know we want to play a clip here because getting into our discussion and the latest developments on our campaign for a postal bank. Um, last week we showed a, a clip from uh, Channel Seven, I think it was, which showed uh, the town of Blackwater that has lost their banks and we don't want to now where, show where the
1: NAB is helping by Let's having the bank open for three, three hours, hours a week
0: on <laughs> one day a week. Um, but now we're going to show another clip and thank you to Wayne Ditchburn for sending us these clips by the way. Uh, very, very useful and this is obviously happening all over the place and we won't see all the reports of it, but it just gives the color to you know to the reality that people on the ground are facing in so many of these towns. Um, so this video is about Dalgetty. Uh, which is, I think, New South Wales, isn't it? Yeah, it's a town yeah.
1: in the, snowy, the foot of the snowy
3: mountains in New South Wales.
0: So we're just going to roll this clip, which shows you what that town is facing.
3: Nearby communities are worried they are being left out. The tiny town of Dalgetty is a 20-minute drive away, but it's losing essential services. The local public school, the post office and its only cafe all closed this year. It's a um, bit devastating really like you know we always had the little shop you know you would you could meet friends there for a cuppa and with the school gone there's nothing really left in the town. Further south Bombala is also under pressure. The town is at risk of losing its only GP clinic after their aged care home closed in April.
1: It is pretty hard to keep things running and nothing's guaranteed.
3: The plan to grow the region is capitalising on strong migration to the area since the COVID-19 pandemic. Land value in Jindabyne went up by 100% last year. It's the highest increase in the state.
4: It was unexpected
1: and regional areas are struggling with that a little bit in terms of infrastructure, housing.
3: Many rural towns across Australia are dealing with similar challenges but it appears the sense of community in these regions is one of the biggest reasons why people choose to stay. Smaller communities wanting to be included in the big picture. Kira Proust, ABC News, Dalgetty.
0: All right, so, you know... Many, there's actual post, they said their post office had shut down and there are, as we've been saying for the last couple of years, many local post offices that can't survive economically. So especially when the whole town is dying, that's going to be a major factor that you, if you've already lost the major banks and people say, oh, but we've got Bank at Post. Well, not necessarily yep. um, because the post offices have to remain uh, viable and, and,
1: and in this in this particular case, I had a I had a good description uh, chat to Wayne because he lives um, not that far from this town of Dalgety. The the, um, the I mean the town the, the essence of the problem is the town is dying, right? And uh, the because of now that it's, it's so extreme, shut, the local post office outlet has shut. The people of Dalgety have to travel um, fifty kilometres to Kuma to get their mail. Instead of instead of having a postal outlet in Delgetti where one mail truck or whatever comes from Cooma and the people at Delgetti just all serve that one go to that one post office. Now they've all got to make separately mm. the trip to Kuma. And as I pointed out to a Green politician who I was talking to about this bank proposal, who's supportive. I said, think about the carbon dioxide emissions, mm. right? Just from this, from this thats one little yeah, example. Yeah, not to
0: mention economic inefficiency, etc. If, if
1: Elisa, the, the post office was a bank,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that was not just being a, not just taking deposits like Bank of Post did, but investing in the local community. Mm-hmm. Right, that community would not be dying. The local governance people, the, like the local councils in charge of that area, could be saying, "Hang on." Boy, if Dalgetty had this piece of infrastructure, I don't know what it would be, right? But every local area knows what they need. If Dalgetty had this piece of infrastructure, if we could just build something like that, it would attract the activity, the industry back to the town mm-hmm. to keep the town alive,
4: yep.
5: right?
1: And that's what a postal bank can do. Mm. And we've just made a yeah, do a call out to that. We've just made a video on this relate how a postal bank could actually help. Local government, mm-hmm. local council. You and I did a show on this a few weeks ago. a help, help um, or was it Richard and I? I
0: think it was Richard.
1: Okay, sorry about that. Uh, Richard and I did a show on this a couple of weeks ago. How local help local government um, from an investment standpoint? Be a, be an investment bank for local government, right? Mm. And do those sort of things, and 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 stop the depopulation of rural Australia. That's a big problem. Get the populations growing again, and you and you reverse the downward spiral.
0: Now, of course, we've been urging people to take this idea to everyone in their community from their MP down to the local councils. And we've just had another council, uh, which is the fourth council now, that has voted up a resolution uh, with a six to four vote in Cobar, New South Wales. This Cobar is Shire Council. This is south of Burke, west of Dubbo um, out there. And, of course, they um, have big problems, like all such towns, with banks leaving um, so the other councils that have passed this were was the Banana Shire Council passed it unanimous, unanimously in Queensland, Narabai passed it unanimously uh, with WeW having recently lost both of their banks and similar story to what you were telling with Dalgetty, um, businesses would have to give employees one to two hours to go and do the banking. so they send off an employee that could be working yep. to drive a one to two hour round trip by the time they get everything done, wait in the queue, etc., and come back. Um, there's not even an ATM in that local town. Um, so that's also New South Wales. And the other town that recently passed a resolution was Yilgarn in Western Australia, which lost its last two major ban- uh, bank branches and is dependent on the post office for day-to-day banking. Again, a two hour drive to the nearest bank branch of a major bank and the councillors there unanimously supported the resolution also um, so we, what we want to do is show a clip though just to give again the flavor of how this works um, and you know to motivate you to go to your local council because they'll have a discussion these are all the issues that are on their plate anyway I, I want to
1: say this is a what we're about to play this this is like a major event in a citizens party report this is a fairly lengthy clip um, but what you're going to see is the entire debate of the Cobar Shire Council because they have a they, some process to put to film these things and put them online. You're going to see the entire debate of the Cobar Shire Council. It doesn't go that long, but it's a bit long, bit of a long clip for us. Um, and and there is a debate because it didn't pass, This is one that didn't pass unanimously. And some of the councillors put up certain objections. Some were um, some were based on a misunderstanding, right? Some were some um, uh, uh, apparently there was. Uh, you know, some, some people might have had connections to the one local bank in town or whatever. But that's OK. They, they had a discussion, right? And um, the, the end result, though, was the Cobar Shire Council um, passing the resolution. And as you said, this is what we need to be replicated all around Australia, which the viewer is in charge of. That's your job to take it to your local council and say, discuss this resolution and, and um, act on it. But uh, Anyway, watch a little bit of how democracy at the grassroots level works mm. in action.
4: Next is the mayoral minute which, uh, since I arrived, I'm <laughs> I must remove it. And I was second to place. Councillor Pine. Yeah. Now, the reason for this Mayor minute was driven home to me at um, in the Empire Hotel, believe it or not. And um, they had just got a, a new um, cook who came from Mulong. I overheard him telling another patron that one had a Cornwall bank and that was closed and left them was banking either at Orange or at um, Wellington. Now, I believe that that Bob Catter is going to move a motion in the Federal House to forward the Commonwealth Postal Savings Bank bill and um, I believe this will help those who are restable to help themselves, the pensioners etc and keep cash available for um, various users. It has a secondary effect in that it also sort of pleases the push for digital money and the next step on the social credit system which I think is very Both are very bad for the um, country as a whole, will and freedom. Anyhow, that's the reason for the um, mayoral minute. Any objections? Anybody want to speak against it? Councillor Payne.
6: Thank you, you, Mr Mayor. Look, I good idea for having a crack at it, I say, but um, the, uh, all the, most of the banks, as you say, have got an affiliation with Australia Post now and offer of the bank at Post. Um, being in the bank, we do advise our customers on how to bank elsewhere, I'm always suggesting you've got online banking and things. I see you concerned about cash and the elderly and vulnerable people. Well, you know what, we'd be far better um, lobbying the banks to keep the branches open rather than going for a Commonwealth post office. We had the facility Australia Post, which is not too bad. They add into it all the time. Um, the latest one is that you can now uh, get cash and coin at the bank. Uh, to me, the training you have to go through um, to handle banking is quite extensive. And I, and I just feel that we do not need a Commonwealth Banking at post. It's become, we had a Commonwealth Bank once and what did we do? We privatised it. It's just double dutch to me and I won't support the nation, I'm sorry. I just think we should lobby the banks to keep their branches open in the country earth, which we push very hard now with the um, executives of the, the National Bank all the time saying leave them open because People, the older people, need the services. There wasn't
4: a case made in one of the towns where they've actually... Sorry Councillor, sorry, it's Councillor Maxwell first. Leave your green light on, leave it on. Councillor Maxwell. Yeah, thanks, Mr Mayor. In reply to Councillor Payne's comments, I support the Mayor, I mostly because it's possibly not going to actually establish another bank, but it may force the current banks to fulfil their community service and customer service obligations. And that's and that's the useful thing I think it might do. Thank you, Councillor Maitland. Councillor Shelton. Um, wasn't there one of the other towns where the,
6: they were closing their bank? There was a business case and anything put forward that proved that the bank should stay and they closed it anyway. So, you know, the banks are, most of the banks are just bastards. And, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, be at their mercy. I I, I think an alternative should be sought. And I agree with um, Councillor Maxwell that perhaps by doing this, it may make the banks wake up. But I don't hold that much hope.
4: Thank you, Councillor Simpson. Councillor Payne. Question?
6: And talk twice, eh? oh, can I Can I just well, finish off what I had to say but While we looking to put something else in It could be the last nail in the coffin For the local branches. you start introducing something else You could just add to the, the reason Why they won't have local branches in the towns
4: Right reply Right reply or we'll put the motion The um, I think I'll just put the motion, those in favour, carried.
0: So the more of that that we have, and of course that resolution, um, it includes sending the demand to the federal members of parliament to vote for this bill that Bobcat is putting up for a a post office bank. So
1: So they pass the resolution to support it and to write to their local member of parliament, right? And so, Lisa, next week I'm going to be in Parliament yeah. meeting with members of Parliament. And it's so invaluable for me to to um, to, to know that pub, the public out there are doing that and councils yeah. are doing that.
0: Now, I just want to give a couple of examples, again, to encourage people to keep doing this because we just received an email from a councillor in Queensland who said, he wrote to us, we didn't initiate this, saying he's been lobbying his federal member for the postal bank. So when we get those messages, that is fantastic. Um, We've got activists now that are forwarding responses from, you know, written by their members of parliament. One, for example, who said he will try to attend this forum that you're holding next Wednesday, who said he agrees in principle with post office banks and is eager to see more details as this proposal progresses and will try to get to the forum. Uh, And also a real shout out to one of our supporters, Hazel, who has called all the councils in her area, emailed them all, sent them all personal Letters with our information, and is calling, um, like called the leader of the National Party and various other MPs as well. And that kind of work goes just, you know, from handfuls of people goes a very long way. And the more we can multiply that, the better it will be. Um,
1: Before we before we move on, I just want to go back to the clip because there was was a couple of things I intended to say about it. One was. Uh, The the misunderstanding is the difference between bank at post, which is you can already do your banking at the post office, and what we're proposing of a postal bank. And the difference is banking at the post office uh, to banking with the post office, right? We're, We're talking about a dedicated postal bank. What bank at post does not do is increase competition in the banking system. It is purely an agency for the existing private banks. That's all it is right and unfortunately it has a big downside which is that they exploit that service um they exploited it for years and i did the interview last year with angela cramp from the lpo group who will be hosting our forum next week where she described how these banks just they just didn't pay properly for the fact that australia post was serving their customers doing all right? the work and and it was costing australia post 50 million dollars a year and most of that was coming out of the pockets of the small business people who run the licensed post offices, right? So they're gonna shut it down, but Christine Holgate came along and said, no, we can't shut it down. 1,500 communities around Australia would lose all banking services if we shut this down. What we have to do is get the banks to pay more, and she did, and she landed the best deal in Australia Post history. So grateful was she landing the deal for the assistance she got from four executives. She gave them gold watches, and two years later, that was used to, you know, in this contrived scandal to destroy her, Um, or at least to destroy her as a CEO of Australia Post. Uh, since she's been gone, the banks that did the deal have renewed the deal, but for less money. They're already squeezing Australia Post again. They actually there's no, You can have no confidence the banks remain committed to this service. If they pull out or They can pull out any time they like. If they do, those communities are abandoned again. And there's no equivalent of Christine Holgate inside Australia Post anymore to fight for them. Right. Whereas if you had a dedicated... What we're talking about is is the government setting up a bank and that bank has one outlet, post offices. The government owns the bank, the government owns the post offices, right? And then the bank will sign an agreement with the post office, with Australia Post, so that it pays Australia Post properly for using its outlets. And those payments are structured to benefit Australia Post and the licensed post offices, right? And what you're doing is By the bank being able to use the post offices, it can provide banking services as cheaply as possible. By the post offices being able to um, be agents for the bank and properly paid for it, it supports the ongoing provision of postal postal services around Australia because there's pressure on those services as well. Mm. This is what you call win-win. And the other benefit is it makes the banks compete. The existing banks will have to compete. That's the difference that people don't understand Sometimes don't understand. What are you talking about? I can already do... No, no. We're talking about a, a dedicated postal mm-hmm. bank. Um, and, you know, just... We, ha- we, You know, we'll be aware of that. We've got literature about it. Talk to your local councils about it. But, you know, this is something that can be explained.
0: And that win-win extends to governments because, as we saw with the Commonwealth Bank, New Zealand saw with Bank of New Zealand, banks are very profitable, even if they're run on a sound and good uh, and fair basis. Yeah. They still make a lot of profit, and in terms of the way this can also funnel money into local government, state government, federal government budgets, and infrastructure, and so forth, as you said, win-win-win.
1: And that's just quickly the other thing that gets raised is, oh, we already have community banks. You know, like Bendigo Bank has this thing where people have community banks. It's not the same thing at all, right? Again, that is just a that that's you know admirably a local community has raised the money to make sure they still have a banking service. It's actually Bendigo or whatever that, that gets all the benefits of their deposits. Bendigo makes the loans. Um, the local community doesn't benefit from that, but I'll tell you something about community banks. They're all profitable. They actually pay dividends to the local communities because bank branches are profitable. When banks are shutting down branches and saying, oh, they're not profitable, they're mm. lying. Mm. They're just not profitable enough, right? And um, one of the examples, Bendigo says, oh, we, we, we invest in community infrastructure, bankers, Councils have told us this. Oh, Bendigo invests in community infrastructure. Yeah, I looked up their website. Australia-wide, it's about $10 million a year. That's great for Bendigo. Hats off to Bendigo for doing that. We're talking about a bank that can do that on a much, Mm. much, much bigger... $10 million a year Australia-wide is peanuts. Mm. You can have a bank that invests in infrastructure, local government infrastructure, community infrastructure around Australia for billions a
0: year
1: mm-hmm. right that's
0: what you need uh, and of course when i referred to the commonwealth and to bank of new zealand i meant before they were privatized we saw you know yeah. what they were capable of doing um, but on that note there's some interesting shifts taking place in new zealand at the moment in this land this banking landscape complete banking desert you know there's Governments are propelled to try to do something about it and last week we mentioned that there was a development on the Kiwi Bank front which we wanted to talk about a little more Uh, and that is that on the 22nd of August the New Zealand Finance Minister Grant Robertson announced that the government has acquired 100% of Kiwi Bank's parent company Kiwi Group Holdings ensuring the bank remains fully Kiwi owned. Um, Now just the background to that because Kiwi Bank obviously was already government owned but it was owned by government agencies, New Zealand Post, New Zealand Superfund and ACCC which is the Crown Insurance Agency but those agencies are run as commercial enterprises and were making a push to sell some of their shares to private companies or banks And the former. Which would have been
1: a partial privatisation of Kiwi Bank. By
0: stealth, exactly. Um, Now, the former New Zealand cabinet minister who you mentioned earlier, who's going to be in Australia to talk about the postal bank, because he has a background in working to set up Kiwi Bank with Jim Anderton, who was the, the key politician who got it through. Um, he said that this, what this decision that's been taken by the New Zealand government is very good in that it is now 100% owned directly by the government with no intermediation. Um, he also referenced what um, the finance minister Robertson stated in that this, he said the transaction ensures Kiwi Bank remains 100% Kiwi owned the new ownership structure simplifies our ability to fully support kiwi bank to meet its future potential which is a key thing Very important. it says the government is fully committed to supporting kiwi bank to be a genuine competitor in the banking industry ensuring the bank has access to capital can to continue to grow on a commercially sustainable basis and offer a viable and competitive alternative for new zealanders
1: uh, this is the next this so what matt robson is saying this is actually a positive development, right, that um, the government of New Zealand is sa- faced with, I'll, I'll tell you what's actually happened here, there's been this pressure that eroded uh, Kiwi Bank over time, subsequent governments were not as supportive of it as the, as the government that Matt was in that set it up, um, one of them was run by a banker, right, Sir so John Key, <laughs> um, but private bankers do not like to compete with public banks, um, so they've been plotting for ages, how can we get rid of this, how can we get rid of this? Here's New Zealand Post and these other agencies saying we want to get, we, we, we want to sell um, Kiwi Bank, and the government had the perfect excuse. So why didn't they take it? Because the public won't let them. This is the bottom line: public banks are popular. Mm. Why? Because the same public knows what the private banks are like, right? And even something that hasn't, that was really in, early on, very good. And was has been eroded somewhat, the New Zealand people public still support it. Mm. And so the government says, okay, we're gonna we are gonna let it off the leash. We're gonna support it to compete with the private banks. And you know what those private banks are, Alessa? They're our banks. Mm. <laughs> Commonwealth, ANZ, National <laughs> Australia Bank, and Westpac. They're the, 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 the subsidiaries they own in New Zealand.
0: And I wanted to mention, you know, we said Jim Anderton um, set up Kiwi Bank, and you can read more about it in our Latest Australian Alert Service, and we've talked about it in greater detail in the past. Um, because he spent 13 years on his basically alone, a single voice in the wilderness pushing for a post, a people's post office bank of some format, and eventually got it instituted in um, 20... 2002. 2002. Um, but When he gave a speech in 1988 when the government decided they were going to privatise the Bank of New Zealand, which had been a public bank since 1861, and he pointed out in that speech was very profitable for the government, Um, he said, and and this is what I think is hopeful that could be reflected in the words of Grant Robertson, the Finance Minister, in what he spoke about, about pulling out the full potential of Kiwi Bank, Anderson said that the Bank of New Zealand, instead of being privatised, could be given the task of providing long-term development funds for viable projects in all of the regions. So he very much had that same concept as we're pushing today for our Post Office People's Bank. A
1: bank that can do investment.
0: That's right. And that's what we desperately need. That's the alternative to crushing austerity.
1: That's right. What is the prescription that doesn't kill the patient? You got to invest. if you're worried about inflation, invest in productivity. And what we're talking about and spent the last 20 minutes talking about it, is the institutions that do that, mm. right? And public banks are first and foremost among those institutions ever since Alexander Hamilton conceived of them 200 plus years ago.
0: Yep, so on to our next topic, I think. Uh, this yep. is how wars are started.
1: Well, we're running out of time, so we'll keep this brief. But we've got a hell of a clip that I want people to watch and own. Because this is a... When I mean own, this is about Australian media. But when the Australian media do what you're about to see in this clip, they're doing it because they think you want them to do it. They They think they're giving you what you want. That's how the tabloid media especially works. Rupert Murdoch has... Totally destroyed standards in media all around the world. And every time, whenever he's been criticised for, it, he says, I'll, "I'm given don't be a snob. I'm giving the public what they want." That's their excuse. So you, so we're saying this is how wars are started because we're about to show you a lie, an outright lie. But, but before we do, I just want to mention another lie that we can't deal with today, but it, because it's topical in the news. Uh, yesterday, the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, released her report on. What China's doing in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs, to to the Uyghur Muslims there, right? And, you know, everybody who's regular on our show knows that we have been debunking these claims for a long time. Um, This report, on the face of it, is damning to China. Uh, The the Human Rights Commissioner says they may be committing crimes against humanity up there in um, Xinjiang. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Lisa, I went to a forum, as we know, and I tried to ask a question and got shut down, and I've been slandered for it um, ever since, uh, and it's actually got quite intense, the, the, the blowback I've received from trying to do this. But the people that I asked the question of um, are the people who've been whipping up a lot of anti-China stuff in Australia, right? So anyway, uh, enough of that. this What I'm about to say is, I, I can't back it up today on the show, but I can tell you um, the same spirit that's going to be in the clip we're about to show you is, is, um, uh, has, what, has been what's driven the people that have put pressure on the UN to come up with this report. Mm. And she was under intense pressure to come up with the report she's come up with. So mm. we're going to deal with that in future shows, right? We'll keep our powder dry for now. Mm. But the, the organisation that I went after that gets cited in the UN report is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And they have created the climate of intense China hatred in Australia that a current affair decided was important for mm. this story. So, like I said, we're gonna play it now, but as you watch it, own it. Because they are pitching it to what they think you want. And if you don't like that, work with us to combat this stuff. Mm. But what's play this is Media Watch Monday this week. Mm. Media Watch, it was so bad Media Watch had to do a story. Yeah. On it. What's this?
5: These are the conflict islands. Conflict by name and potentially conflict by nature. We are already under siege here. So come on, Australia.
2: Where the bloody hell are you? Hello, I'm Paul Barry. Welcome to Media Watch. And to Trouble in Paradise. Last Monday, a current affair alerted us to a national security threat on the conflict islands, an isolated atoll less than 1,000 kilometres from Cairns with ACA's Steve Marshall telling viewers they're up for sale and we should all be worried.
5: These privately owned islands are going under the hammer.
2: They're vacant and they're freehold.
5: And anyone can buy them.
2: Yes, anyone, which is why millionaire owner Ian Gary smith is offering the Australian government first dibs on all 21 of the islets and warning... It is heaven, it is. but it's a heaven under threat. And how so? Because, Mr Gary Smith claims, a foreign buyer could be interested.
5: Would you be prepared to sell these islands to the Chinese? Yes, I have to sell the islands. If a military-minded China moves in... Perfect for any type of aircraft, fighter jets even. ..it'll get plenty of bang for its buck. This opportunity should scare every Aussie.
2: According to Gary Smith, he contacted Foreign Minister Penny Wong's office in June to warn of this, and to offer up the islands at the bargain price of just 25 million US dollars.
5: Is that a little on the low side? Uh, I have had valuations of up to 100 million.
2: But he got no reply from the minister.
5: I haven't heard dicky-boo from them,
2: nothing. So he went to a current affair, and suddenly his tropical paradise had its own TV sales campaign. And a chorus of voices on Sky were getting fired up at the government for ignoring the Chinese threat.
4: Where's the press conference today from the Foreign
2: Minister, Penny Wong? I will just ignore these Chinese incursions once again, will we? We've now learnt that China is eyeing off purchasing a string of islands just off Papua New Guinea, aptly named the Conflict Islands. And by the time the Daily Mail was done with the story, the deal was all but sealed and that foreign power was moving in. Suddenly, the little atoll no-one had ever heard of was the hottest property in town, until the Prime Minister was tackled about it by Ben Fordham on 2GB and burst the bubble. Shouldn't this be in our national security and and leaning into regional stability to have a chat to this bloke about buying the islands?
5: Yeah, there's over 500 in that area, Ben. Over 500. Think about the implications. If sellers of assets uh, can, through uh, the media say, I want Australia to buy this, or else these implications will sell it to China. Think about where that
3: ends.
2: Where it ends would be with Australia owning an awful lot of islands. Or, in this case, with a monumental backdown by Ian Gary smith the island's owner, on Nine. How concerned, actually, are you um, that China could establish Navy and Air Force footholds there? I don't think that's a particularly high probability. What?! And not only that, Gary Smith then revealed the Chinese had never expressed interest in the islands, and why would they? Because they're not even on the market.
5: We're not involved in any discussions with the Chinese at the moment to, to try and sell to them. The, the properties are not on the market.
2: So, what on earth was ACA's exclusive 18-minute story about the Chinese threat all about? We contacted Mr Gary Smith to ask just that, and he confirmed the islands are indeed not on the market. Telling Media Watch, I am seeking to engage in discussions about the future of the islands before the islands are placed on the market. I only went to the media when repeated attempts over two months did not get acknowledged. And what did he think of a current affairs treatment of his story, along with all those menacing Chinese rockets? There was a serious failure in government communication. If it had been my choice, I would have concentrated more on that, rather than the somewhat less likelihood of the CCP buying it but as we all know that would have been a far less exciting story
0: and just to note that that island owner <laughs> needn't have got into that whole flap about it because anything like this goes through the foreign investment review board anyway it would have come to the government's attention for review
1: what a dodgy character that yeah. owner is right um, but this is, look you know we we are we are a, a separate political party because we don't like both major parties, a pox on both their houses. But, you know, I'm happy to give credit where it's due to Mm. any politician. And Elbow's answer to that was gold, right? Mm. What a scam. This was an outright scam, playing on your prejudice. And I'm I'm being very general. If you're one of the viewers that don't have the prejudice, good (laughs) on you. But too many Australians have this prejudice. And a a scammer who wants to sell an island and a current affair, which is a scammer... um, media outlet, mm. run by Peter Costello now, right, and, and the Nine Group, they thought, cha-ching, mm. let's just pretend this is going to be a Chinese invasion. Mm-hmm. This is as big a scam as Clive Palmer's stupid claims about the airstrip in northern Western Australia. It, but, it, but people got to understand, this is pitched to us because they think we're going to swallow this. Mm. Because that's what prejudice does. And why we said this is how <coughs> wars are started yeah. is because it gets very very dangerous you can talk your you can have politicians in parliament that are just as gullible as the general public and they walk around there saying oh man did you hear about the latest thing the mm. chinese have, have bought these these islands off new guinea and they're going to launch their invasion from there right this is garbage and um, that's a tabloid version of it in coming weeks we will respond very authoritatively and comprehensively to this UN Human Rights Commission report.
0: Yep. And uh, our media, et cetera, they have to stop playing with fire because this is very the serious. The day the missiles
1: come flying, we mm, will think... It's
0: too late. Was well, any of this worth it? Because, mm-hmm.
1: like, uh, uh, Elisa, if, if half of what they said about China is true, I'd be saying it too. Mm. We do. We looked at this in such detail, almost none of it's true.
0: Mm. Yep. But that detail is available. Get a hold of a copy of our alert service to find out the work that we have done to back all this up and subscribe to it on a week- weekly basis so that you're informed.
1: And please, um, you'll see the video soon up on our webs- on, up on YouTube of um, what, what I said yep. earlier about councils and the Postal Bank. Mm. It's an eight-minute video. Make sure you watch that and share it with your councillors. Yeah. And that aside, this coming week, call... Starting Monday, call your Member of Parliament and call the Senators in your state and say, go to the Postal Bank Forum. Mm. Um, midday, 1pm Wednesday the 7th in the Senate Committee Room 2S3.
0: So we should have a very good report next week, next Friday, when we record the next show.
1: I'll be back on Thursday. You're going to make me do the show on Friday.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you'll have something to say, we hope. I'll be <laughs> exhausted. Right. So thanks for that. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.